Hello and welcome to this Head Talks podcast. We've been speaking to Paul Dolan. He's Professor of Behavioural Science at the London School of Economics. He's also the author of best-selling books on happiness, including Happiness by Design and Happy Ever After. And he's been an advisor to the government on how to change social behaviour. One of the important things when we're thinking about happiness is to think about what we mean by it. And it's obviously a very loosely defined term that's been around for thousands of years. And so in Happiness by Design, I set happiness out as being a twin set of experiences, pleasure and purpose. Each of us find our own balance of things that we find on the one hand fun and other activities that we find fulfilling. And so I say that happy lives are ones that find the right balance between pleasure and purpose. I mean, the key thing in that, aside from the pleasure and purpose principle, is the fact that it's in the experiences that we have. It's in what we do. It's in how we use our time. It's in who we spend time with. And it's not in the, the narratives or stories we tell about the things that we think should make us happy. And sometimes when we ask people questions about overall how satisfied they are with their life these days, for example, we tap into the stories that people tell about the things that they think should make them happy rather than those things that more directly do. So I'm very much about happiness being in the experiences, in how we spend our time in, and the things that we do. So for some academics, their research interests are borne out by personal observation and experience. And I, in relation to pleasure and purpose, I, I sort of come from a working class background where people knew how to have fun. They knew how to enjoy themselves, but they didn't find their jobs particularly fun or purposeful, uh, didn't have a lot of meaning in their activities and in their lives. Then you go into to academia and you get almost the complete opposite. People don't know how to have fun, <laughs> um, but they have jobs and work that they find meaningful and purposeful. And I was thinking it'd be nice if you could bring those two worlds together in some sense, right? So that people could could both simultaneously do things in life that, that they enjoy and also things that they find purposeful. So I think that it's for each of us to work out that balance. And of course, some people like most academics will actually be driven more by purpose than they might be by be by pleasure and, and, and other people more by you know fun than by fulfillment so I think the important point in happiness advice always is not to give advice actually about how people ought to live I think anyone's got this one-size-fits-all approach is probably wrong is to give people a framework or a template from which to work and I think one of the observations I've had back on on these insights is that it's allowed people to think about things that they're doing that actually they might not find neither pleasurable nor purposeful <laughs> and thinking actually what what am I doing it for what is the point of this and 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 as I sort of said before really to some extent it's that we might be living in the stories about the things that we ought to be doing because that's what society specs of us it's what our parents wanted us to do it's what we think our friends would like us to do rather than actually what would make us feel happy and maybe actually you know there's a lot of bad things about the current situation but one of the good things potentially is that it might allow us an opportunity to reflect to step back a little bit and to think about you know what we're doing with our time out i've mentioned this quite a lot of time i mean how we use our time is the scarcest resource that we have right you can beg borrow and steal money but you're never going to get back time that you use and so we don't pay enough attention i don't think to how we allocate that scarce resource and so what the pandemic has given us an opportunity to do, to some extent, at least for some of us, is to think about whether we are using time in the most pleasurable and purposeful ways, and actually whether we might want to reallocate time to things that we would find pleasurable or purposeful, given the balance that we'd like to strike. Things are really changing at the moment. I think that the people have been willing to make sacrifices to their lives to 
pleasure and to purpose, but particularly to pleasure, I think, for periods of time in the expectation that that's not going to last forever. And I think there's a realisation now amongst many people that, that that, you know, probably isn't the case and that things could go on, you know, for quite a lot longer than they might have anticipated in March. And so the idea that we are, we're putting fun on hold for a significant period of time, I think will start to play into people's anxieties a bit more. And people will find ways, hopefully within the law, but they'll find ways of having those experiences that they would otherwise have had in a more shared community sense, you know, you know, parties and clubs and music venues and, and you know, cultural and arts events, that they might find ways, they are finding ways, I suppose, of doing that with a limited circle of people that they are allowed to mix with. And maybe doing a lot more of it virtually and online, but but you know, it's it, the online interaction of those kinds are going to be a very poor substitute for the real thing. We do benefit enormously as a species from being around other people, enjoying ourselves. Shared misery is less miserable when it's shared, and pleasure is more heightened when it's shared. And so, we're going to have to navigate our way through to find ways of having fun in a shared way, and that is going to be challenging if this goes on for a long time. A lot of our experiences are lived in the anticipation of future experiences. So, you know, we're thinking about, oh, well, Christmas or summer holidays or, you know, the next thing that we look forward to. And, and actually maybe, again, trying to find something positive in what's happening. I mean, you know, actually, I mean, it is worth saying that one of the key insights, I think, is to accept things are not great right now, right? And, and, and actually not to sort of pretend that, that everything's okay. And actually part of being happier is actually accepting that you're not. And so that sort of gives you a catalyst for both feeling better and changing your behavior, actually, if you just accept things are not, not as you know, great as they might otherwise be, rather than trying to pretend that everything's okay, because it isn't. But insofar as we can find positive things in it, is it maybe, again, an opportunity to think about how we can more directly experience pleasure and purpose in our experiences as we live them and not as we anticipate them being? And, you know, maybe we place too much stall on those big occasions and big events that are coming in the future. You know, the fact that weddings have been put on hold and people are having to have smaller ones is, is probably no bad thing, right? I mean, it's a huge amount of money that people waste, spend, sorry, on, you know, marrying the one, when actually there are some good data to show that the more you spend on the wedding, the more likely you are to get divorced. So maybe it's an opportunity for us to think about where we pay attention to those anticipations of future events that often don't live up to those expectations and maybe more directly pay attention to the smaller things that we experience day to day. Whatever your views on how we should respond to the pandemic, I think one of the challenges has been that we haven't paid enough attention to the messaging around the impacts on misery as much as we have around the impacts on mortality. All of the messages have been about what we can do to reduce virus transmission risks. That's really what the message is about. Not so much about what we can do to mitigate the impact that the policy interventions have had on those people that are going to be most affected by it in a mental health sense. You know, what can we do? What sort of messaging might there be to help other people who are, you know, really struggling from loneliness or other issues around the pandemic or what actually even what we can do to ask for help? I mean, I think that's really quite important too. And again, you know, trying to be positive when things are not great is, you know, maybe this has provided us also with an opportunity to be more open about how we might be feeling, right? How, how we could actually ask people that, that we know or, or might care about us or more generally for help. And asking for help is good because the people helping you benefit from helping you. So you get benefit, and they do too. 
I think that sort of reminds me of, of another very important point, I think, is the, is the selfishness of selflessness. How pro-social acts have an enormous amount of personal reward. And that's great and that's fine and we should celebrate that. And we know we've got actually very good evidence on this from randomized controlled trials that when you, when you draw attention to the personal benefits that come from pro-social behavior, you get more of it. And so um, there's nothing wrong in feeling good about yourself when you help other people. And, and so I think, again, maybe this is an opportunity for us to remind ourselves of that. When I wrote Happiness by Design, it, was, it clearly wasn't a self-help book, but it was in the same principles of the idea that there's lots of things that you can do for yourself to make yourself happier. It was a much more action-oriented approach and not just about you know being positive or feeling good, which is the sort of glib advice that you get from self-help books. It was about how you could actually implement some changes in your life that would make them stick and make it more likely that you could experience more sustainable pleasure and purpose over a longer period. But there's also lots of constraints that act on us in being able to do that. And I don't think there's anywhere near as much written in the literature on those constraints that you face in the outside world, um, and not just in your own head. And some of those constraints come from the stories that we're told about the lives that we ought to lead. It's impressed upon us, many of us, from very early on, that we need to be rich and successful and smart, and we need to get married, we need to have children, we need to achieve a lot of things in life and tick off lots of boxes. We need to reach for things, and we uh, and we need to aspire to more and more and more. And you know, those stories can be helpful to some degree because life can be pretty complex and chaotic without a narrative. They give our lives some order and structure, but they're not for everybody and certainly not all of the time. And, you know, there is a point at which, for example, in our accumulation of success and status and wealth, where we reach a point where we have enough, you know, it becomes like an addiction. You kind of can't stop consuming. You need more and more and more and more, even though the hit from each incremental unit gets smaller and smaller and sometimes starts to fall. So what I tried to do in Happy Ever After was to sort of set out some of these constraints on being happy and, alert us really, I, I suppose, to some of those stories that might get in the way of us being happy and to accept them. I think that's just really more about drawing attention to them and just showing that what the happiness data suggests, and of course, you know, a lot of this is not clear cut, but you know, that there comes a point at which, for example, driving for more and more success and status might actually, you know, sort of actively make you less happy or might, might affect those around you. And then you ask yourself the question of what, what is it that you're doing it for? And, and often it'll be because that's what you ought to do. It's because that's what you've been told to do. It's what's, what people expect of you. It's what your family want. It's what society expects. And, you know, marriage and having kids and stuff, you know, they, they, they will be, of course, you can never be, it'd be silly to say that people ought not to do these things because that would be mad too. It's not to say that you should have a counter narrative that is anti narrative but just that it's for each person to work out for themselves really what life they ought to be leading what things they ought to be driven by what goals they should be trying to achieve and it's for the rest of us to leave them alone to get on with it and one of the things that really that really fascinates me and has for a long time and again maybe a pandemic is an opportunity to replace some of this is how much we care about how other people live like how affected we are by the sorts of choices that other people make and how, you know, for example, lots of people will judge women that haven't married and had children really harshly, <laughs> like as if they're selfish or something, which is like a really, it's a really odd thing to say about a woman that doesn't have children, where children actually, if you're thinking about the impact on CO2, having kids is probably about one of the worst things that you could possibly do. So people that don't have children are actually quite selfless, but 
we don't like people who don't conform to the stereotypes of what we ought to we think they ought to be doing and when people have asked in some studies to judge the sort of goodness of different types of people we like women that are trying to have children but haven't yet had them more than we like those ones that have voluntarily decided to be child free because <laughs> at least at least the former are playing in playing by the rules they might not succeed and we and we like people that want to try to get rich even if they might always be poor because they're playing by the rules as i say they might fail but at least they're playing by the rules if you choose to actively opt out if you choose to not want to be driven by success and status and wealth and if you if you choose not to have children or choose not to marry then we feel uncomfortable about that we feel uncomfortable about people who are violating the expectations that we have for them as if sort of social fabric is going to start to fall down and you know we we know it won't you know i grew up at a time when people were very anti-gay mostly i mean if you said to me you know when i was growing up that in my lifetime even marriage between you know two men would be completely acceptable i'd probably think that was a bit earlier than it might happen and yet it's happened fantastically and the world's still turning there aren't more gay people than there were before it's not like it's not like people choose it it's just we just accept it more and i I think that this is again an opportunity perhaps for us to be just more accepting of the heterogeneity that there might be in life the fact that people can choose different paths and and it's and it's okay the world will still the world will still keep on turning it's one of the things i think we we all do as much as some of us might say we don't is we do compare ourselves to other people it's very hard not to i mean it's it's, it's, it's hard to actually know whether you know if you ask me whether i think i'm well paid or not i can't really do that i can't answer that question without thinking about what i think other people earn in the comparison group that are that are relevant to me and and nearly always we have a comparison group of people that are just doing just a little bit better so that's why we always think that we're kind of a little bit worse off than we are and then we'd be happier if we got more money for example so we can't we can't avoid those comparisons but i think what we can do potentially as individuals and as society is to reframe the dimensions across which we make those kinds of comparisons so so rather than it being nearly always and only about financial status and success and jobs and occupations it could be about the quality of our relationships our pro-sociality it's why i've kind of i know the sunday times have now started publishing the highest taxpayers as well as the rich list um i said to them and other papers for a very very long time that that's the kind of thing we should be doing like so if you type into google the world's richest man or per well it's always man nearly is at the moment now but you get jeff bezos or bill gates whatever very easy find that if you type in world's highest taxpayer you get loads of tax avoidance and evasion schemes and places you can put your money to pay lower tax rates. So we could recast. I think we are always going to compare ourselves to other people. We can't help that. That's a necessary part of the human condition. But what we can do is we can reframe the kinds of comparisons that we make. So the celebration of people that do good things, I think, is one way in which we can do that. So we can aspire to be more like them rather than sort of to pretend that we're not going to compare ourselves to others. And I think making transparent those kinds of dimensions and also having some sort of quantification of them right that would make it easier because i can observe it's actually much more readily easy for me to observe how wealthy someone is i can look at the house they're in the car they drive the clothes they wear but generosity i mean i have no idea right i have no there's no visible ways in which i can observe whether you're someone who does a lot for other people does nothing so i think making transparent some of those other attributes would allow us to compare ourselves to others more directly Thanks for listening to this Head Talks podcast. We hope you found it helpful and interesting. You can find many more talks on our website at headtalks.com 
or listen to our podcasts on all the usual channels.